0: Welcome to the Village Chapel audio podcast. The Village Chapel is a non-denominational church in Nashville, Tennessee, that focuses on a verse by verse study of the Bible. If you'd like a copy of the sermon notes that accompany this podcast, you can download a PDF version by visiting our website at www.podcast.thevillagechapel.com. We're glad to have you with us. May the Lord richly bless you as you join us for this study. And now here's Pastor Jim Thomas. We study through books of the Bible here at the Village Chapel, and we do have extra copies with us. If you'd like one to follow along, just raise your hand up real high. We'll be glad to get one to you so that you can follow along. And we're in John's gospel, uh, a beautiful gospel, the gospel of glory, as we're calling it. And we'll be in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Um, Before we get rolling, I'm going to throw up on the screen the map so that you kind of know exactly what it looks like, where we're going to be. If you look, uh, Galilee is in giant red letters there, and right over the A is where Cana is. We're going to be there. Uh, It's about a dozen miles Some say a little bit more. Some say a little bit less from Nazareth, due north. And uh, you see it's kind of, you know, west of Capernaum. We're going to read a lot about Capernaum as we go through any one of the four Gospels. That's the hub of Jesus' uh, um, ministry up in Galilee. And that Galilee is the term we use for the region, the northern third of Israel. A lot of his ministry takes place up there, as well as in the southern third of Israel, which is typically called uh, Judea. And uh, Jerusalem's down there in Judea. So you'll hear about these, these places and I just want you to see that, the old ruins uh, that are left from the best that we can tell, the best site for, the, uh, for, for Cana. Here you'll see the ruins from the synagogue as it's being uncovered. That's the next slide here. So, um, so what we have here is sort of the foundation uh, for that synagogue that would have been in Cana of Galilee. Um, there's another site in Capernaum that w- was one of the other cities I pointed out to you on the map a minute ago. There's a site there that's been dated back to the fourth century, and the foundation beneath that one to the first century. So when we go over, and some of you have gone with us, and some of you may want to go with us, we're going again in 2018 in the fall. If you'd like to go to Israel, if you'd like to go to the Holy Land with us, love to have you come. Just send an email into info at thevillagechapel.com. We'll get your name on the list. You'll get all the information. Doesn't mean you're committing to going. It just means you want to know about the trip and you want to know uh, to consider, but there's nothing more exciting, to be honest with you, than studying the Bible in the places where it happened, uh, worshiping the Lord together in the places where some of this stuff happened, reminding us that our Bible is not just a fairy book, it's not just a sort of a, a, a myth or legend, but these are real things that happened in space-time history in real geographical places. Um, we don't worship those places; they're not they're not holy in some way, but uh, uh, but God's. Uh, God did indeed choose to enter space-time history in these geographic places, and it's really great fun to walk where Jesus walked. We're gonna begin then in verse one of uh, chapter two of John's gospel where it says this, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. Can you imagine when that invitation to the wedding came? You know, you guys have been, you guys have received invitations to weddings. They're usually thicker envelopes. And you kind of know what's in there you open it up there's the rsvp card there's the calligraphy invitation so and so and so and so, and so. we're going to tie the knot and you know your the presence the you know the privilege of your presence and the blessing of your presence is requested and you're supposed to respond all that. i i you know jesus is there his disciples his mother mary is there right it's cana it's 12 miles to the north or so of nazareth Jesus' hometown as he grew up, and you can see this is just a normal sort of community kind of an event, but yet John uses the third day as he opens up the story of the first miracle that he records. There'll be seven miracles or signs, as John tends to call them. There'll be seven of them, and the first one he opens up, it says, on the third day. It's interesting that he would say that. Maybe it was three days from the last little bit of his narration. That's probably true, but it also foreshadows a three-day wait that happens later, which is the last of his sign miracles that John records, the resurrection of Jesus in John chapter 20, which we'll study, and I'm always excited to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. So Mary's there, the disciples are there, the wedding is going on. Um, Verse three, And the wine gave out. Oh, man. So things went wrong with the party and the celebration. And in their day, by the way, it wasn't just an hour and a half thing. In their day, a wedding ceremony lasted about a week. Man, a village like this would be just lots of music and dancing and lots of people coming from nearby villages and places crowded, lots of partying going on, festivities, frivolity, all kinds of stories around campfires, all that kind of stuff going on. And the wine gave out. You know, so she, the mother of Jesus, said to him, meaning Jesus, they have no wine. That's just, you know, she's coming to him. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why is she going to Jesus? She expect him to run down to Frugal's and, and pick up a case? Of, I mean, what's going on? How do you know what Frugal's is? <laughs> um, so, so they, so, how do I know what Frugal's is? Ah! So is he just supposed to run up there and grab a few cases of something? What's going on there? You know, you kind of, you kind of wonder there. And, and no, what does she know about her son that makes this make sense? Remember, she's like 40-something now. He was born to her when she was a teenager, probably upper teens. And now he's 30 as he begins his public ministry. And she knows something in her 40s. I don't know if you're in your 40s, but if you can imagine Mary, the mother of Jesus, in her 40s. She knows something about this guy, her son, And I don't know, growing up, we don't have a lot of information about what he was doing when he was growing up and what kind of things happened out on the playground at school with the second, third, and fourth grade Jesus, you know. I mean, did they play baseball? And could he go to infinity and beyond, you know, and literally mean it? (laughs) I mean, uh, I mean, what, you know, what did she know about him? Uh, they have no wine. They're, they've run out of wine. And so <laughs> Jesus says to her, verse 4, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. And that, you know, I got to be honest. I read this and I thought, well, wow, first of all, you call your mom woman, you know, what do I have to do with you? And then you got to know, and the, this is the same exact term he uses in John chapter 19 as he speaks from the cross. And it's not what you say. It's, it's, it's not as cold and just gender identification as you might think it would be, or relationship identification as you might think it is. He's saying, Dear woman, this isn't any business of ours, is essentially what he's saying. My hour has not yet come. And what he's basically telling her and telling all of us, too, by extension, is that he's aware of the pacing of his ministry. And he's also approachable when someone has a need. And this isn't even a life-threatening need. This isn't like somebody needs to be raised from the dead or some leprosy needs to be cleansed or, you know, healed. It's not somebody whose eyes need to be open. It's not somebody who needs to get up from their, their, you know, they're they're laying on a mat and they're lame or whatever. This is just some wine at a wedding. And so he co- she comes and she says this They have no wine. And he says, my dear, what do, what, what's it got to do with us? My hour hasn't come. Well, his mother said to the servants, she turns to the servants, and here's what she says, verse 5. Whatever he says to, to you, do it. So she must know he's going to do something. And here's what I love. These are the final words of Mary that we have in John's gospel. We hear about her. But this is the last thing she says. And she basically looks at the servants and says, hey, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. And let me just tell you, that's still good advice. Okay? As your pastor, I'm not going to shy or shrink back from the, the responsibility of exhortation, okay? Whatever he says to do, do it. And not just because he says so, Don't let that be your motivation. The Christian faith, the gospel, is not about religious rule following. It's about this is what it really means to be human as God designed you to be and to be in relationship with other humans as God designed human relationships to work. You ought to get in on that. So his way should become your way uh, because he knows How things go best see and so whatever he says to do you honor him by doing it and it's for your own good and for the good of your neighbor when you do whatever he tells you to do there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each verse 6 is one of those live body details this is the description of the catering truck and what was on it okay just for those of you that trying to figure out what does this mean okay six pots that carried, that could hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. And typically for them, you know, they walked everywhere they went, or, or sometimes they would ride a, an animal, but their feet were dirty and they would come to a party like this and they would wash each other's feet. And so this was purification water. That's what these jars were for. And they had run out, basically, because we're deep into the week at this point. And the party's been going on for a while. How do I know that? Oh, they ran out of wine. So we know we're deep into the week, and we know they're out of water now. And Jesus is, or John is telling us here that there were these six stone, and look at that live body detail. They could hold 20 or 30 gallons. You know, man, by my measure, if you, if, and you, you guys know, you've read the story, he's gonna turn the water into wine. If you pour a four ounce glass of wine, that's like, that's like 120 to 180 glasses, you know? I, I, you know that's a lot of, a lot of, uh, A lot of wine. I'm sorry, 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine, okay? Yeah. So Jesus then says to these servants who have been told by Mary, do whatever he says. Jesus says to them, fill the water pots with water. I like that. That's a really obvious thing to say and and to to call them to do. Uh, It's interesting. He didn't say to them, fill the water pots with wine. Or fill the water pots with Gatorade or fill the water pots with Kool-Aid or whatever. There's so many things he could have said, fill the water pots with. Instead, he said, go fill them with water. They haven't got a clue what he's going to do. He just gives them this command. You know, I often don't have a clue what the Lord is going to do. But yet he'll tell me something and his word will instruct me to do something. And I don't always understand. But he's pulling them into participation with him and what he's about to do. And that's a beautiful thing. So he gives them this one, this one bit of instruction, and they filled them up to the brim. Imagine if that whole thing had shut down right there, and they had not gone and filled the water out. Who's this guy? I think he's the carpenter's son from over there in Nazareth. What does he know about anything to do with catering? What does he know about wine? What does he know about water? Why is he telling us what to do? Who's this 30-year-old, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's the millennial of their time. He's going to certainly be dismissed at some point, isn't he? You know? and, uh, and then he goes, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. This was actually job-threatening, you know, because the head waiter knows they've run out of wine. He's frantic. It's a social embarrassment to run out of supplies in this kind of a setting when the whole village, I mean, would he ever be hired again? He didn't bring enough. Would he ever be hired again? And here his servants go and they get some water and they're, they're saying, bring it here, you know? And, and they're along the way, we don't know when, but along the way between we're filling the jars with water to we are carrying it to the head waiter, something happens. And that's what we're told about right here. They took it to him and when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and didn't know where it came from, the head waiter didn't know where it came from. Parentheses, but the servants who had drawn the water knew where it came from. The head waiter called the bridegroom. Remember, there's a couple here. They're very doughy, gooey-eyed couple. Oh, we're getting married! Everything's so awesome! This is our big day! You know? You know what are we gonna do? I don't. Know. Where are we gonna honeymoon? I don't know. Let's go to Capernaum, you know, or whatever. They're thinking about all the. You know, they're all caught up in the big day and all that sort of thing. They don't even probably know about this problem. It's one of those problems people whisper about. Behind, don't let the, we don't want the couple to be disturbed by this. But we're out of wine. Somebody do something, you know. And so uh, the headmaster, the head waiter rather, comes to him and says, you, um, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer, you've kept the good wine until now. So this is actually about the quality of the wine here. And the common practice back then was, early on in a celebration like this, give them the good wine because they can taste the difference. And after a couple glasses, they don't really notice the difference. And so then you slip in the cheaper wine or whatever. You know, I got a friend that does, he's he's got a wedding band up in uh, Philadelphia. uh, his name's Jack, and he, he, get, yeah, at the beginning, he tells me at the beginning of the—they the, usually play the wedding receptions and stuff like that. He tells me for the first hour, they play all their best songs. You know, all the cover songs they know, they, they know really well and can perform really well. They play those in the first hour. And then after a few glasses and all that sort of thing have happened, then he says I switch into what I call Fred Zeppelin mode. Fred Zeppelin is when he starts, sing, you know, they just take turns singing. Nobody really knows this. Song. They're just doing their best. And it's because people have had a little bit of wine and they can kind of, you know, do the songs that aren't the best. That's the same way it was here. Everybody starts with a good one, but you've saved the best wine for now, is what the head waiter says. How is it that this tastes so much better than the wine we've already, you know, handed out and that has disappeared and then John, the narrator, takes over now. That, that kind of closes that out. And he says, the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You see the two results in verse 11, the two results of this miracle. He manifested his glory. Don't, don't go by that so fast. That just sounds like a religious phrase. No, he, he put on display his glory. The miracles of Jesus do at least three or four things. They they affirm his identity. That's true. If he's the Son of God really, he ought to be able to do some interesting things. Um, so they display, you know, they affirm his his identity, but they display his power. He can actually do this stuff. The same one who John and John uh, the first chapter that we've already studied in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and everything came into being That has come into being through this word Jesus was present at the creation event if he can create everything out of nothing It's it's really a very simple thing then for him to take some of his water that he created and simply turn it into wine you and I are pretty good at turning water into tea or Kool-Aid or 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 whatever, we can put some water in our coffee machines and and get our little, you know, espresso out or whatever we can. We we love doing all of that. But do you know how long it takes to make really great wine? It doesn't happen between where they scooped the water into the jars and then they carried it to the head waiter that's this is something amazing he has done and only he can do this kind of thing and it does manifest his glory it's not just a sideshow it's not just a little bit of supernatural entertainment it manifests his glory it sets him apart from everybody else that has ever walked the planet and then The second result is right there in verse 11 as well. His disciples believed in him. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, didn't his disciples already believe in him? Yeah, they did, but we're going to watch their theology as we go through the book of John. We're going to watch their theology develop, much like yours and mine continues to develop over time. We learn, and grace upon grace is given to us. And the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, opens our eyes to learn, and we continue to learn. And, and that's, that's beautiful what's happening right there. Verse 12, and we'll finish up. After this, he went down to Capernaum. So, he's, so he goes over to the east toward Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and there, they stayed for a few days. And that'll become really the hub of his Galilean um, ministry up there in Capernaum. He'll travel around the Sea of Galilee to a number of different places. But um, let's remind ourselves, if we could of the the intention, the authorial intent of John as he writes this book. It's toward the end of the book, uh, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I'll put it up on the screen for you to read aloud with me. Therefore, many other signs, if you will, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So what that says is that John's intention in writing this, and beginning with the miracle of Cana a Galilee, of turning water to wine, seven miracles, the biblical number of completion, there will be seven I am statements of Jesus. But these seven miracles that begin with water to wine in Cana of Galilee at a simple wedding, not a life-threatening need, but an everyday need, bookended with the resurrection of Jesus, the seventh sign that John records for us, showing us that this God of the Bible, this Jesus who came to earth Himself to save sinners like you and me, He's concerned about our everyday life, as well as about our eternity. And those two bookends on his sign miracles, if you will, remind us of that. John has written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's not his last name, that's his title. He's the anointed one of God. He's unique in every way. Christ is the Greek version of Messiah, the Hebrew version of the same title. He's not just another of all of the Religious world leaders that have ever been. He's not even the best of just the the world religious leaders that have ever been. He's an altogether different thing. He's the Christ, He's the Messiah. He's God's salvation on offer to you and to me as a gift. And this is one of the reasons why we pay so much attention to Jesus. In John 2, 1 through 12, we have the wedding in Cana. Uh, like I say, about a week, we've got mother, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, in her 40s. Don't know where Joseph was at this. Haven't got a clue. He seems to fade from the picture. Um, uh, but again, I, I, I love her her last statement in the book, do whatever he tells you to do. I love that about her. Um, we've got Jesus, whose public ministry is just beginning but is clear, clearly tapping the brakes a little bit here, but he's approachable, and he's concerned about this everyday sort of experience, you know. Uh, You have these attendees in the village. It was probably crowded, lots of campfires, lots of music, all of that. You got the bride and groom, and, and how long do you think they talked about their wedding? You won't believe what happened at our wedding. We ran out of wine. We didn't even know it ourselves at the time. We were over here dancing and singing. And somebody came to us later and told us what happened. And then another few years go by, and Jesus hangs on the cross and rises from the dead. And soon, the whole area, you know, right before that, the whole area, by the thousands, people are following Jesus. And at their wedding, when they look back over the photos, you know what I mean, when they look back to their wedding, that guy was at their wedding, and that guy turned the water into wine at their wedding. Pretty amazing when you think about that. Mary's last recorded words, um, the head waiter, um, Jesus' command, fill the jars with water. What a simple task, and yet participating in what he was about to do. I love that about our God. You and I, we are invited regularly to join God in the mission that He is on in this world. Will you join Him? You know, what if they just stopped and not gone and got the water at all? And what does getting the water mean? Well, if it's your personal life, your personal spiritual life, going to get the water might mean just reading your Bible, getting on your knees and spending some time in prayer, serving in Second Saturdays of a City Service. We had 60 people yesterday come and serve. It was awesome. I'd like to get a group together and go either down to to Houston or down to Florida. After all the cameras and TV, all that stuff's gone, those people are going to be hurting still. I'd love us to get a crew together and drive down and help. Maybe some of you will do that. What if we just obeyed his command when he said, go fill it with water, trusting all along that he's going to be the one to turn it into wine. We can't do it. We don't have the ability. I, I don't have the ability to do it but read your Bible. Pray. Serve Him. Give. Some of you need to be giving, and you're not giving. Some of it, whether that's your time, your resources, your money, whatever it might be, you need to be doing what Jesus has already told us to do. That's a good exhortation for all of us to hear. Um, you have this water that's turned into this wine, and I, I, I love what he's done here. I love it that it's the best wine. It's not just some wine. And it's a sign miracle. It doesn't point to itself. It points to something else. When you're driving on I-40 and you're headed back to Nashville from Memphis and it says Nashville 27, it's not the sign that says look at me, I'm a sign. No, it's a sign pointing you to Nashville that it's 27 miles. And these miracles are that too. We need not worship these miracles. We need not even obsess over them, but they affirm His identity. They show His power. They display it. They they also show His compassion toward others, even a simple little wedding in a neighborhood that He would become involved in all of that. Um, Death is defeated at the end of this last miracle, number seven in in John's gospel. I love it. It's from everyday to significant eternal consequences in His miracles. It's really amazing. So water to wine, the best wine, it just shows us Jesus is in the transformation and conversion business. And it's not conversion by coercion with the Christian faith. Nobody's holding a sword to anybody's neck and saying, recant, you know, deny your faith or believe this or say that with a sword to your throat. Nobody's holding a pistol in anyone's head. The gospel is an offer. It's for you to either receive or some, of, some people to reject. How about you? Where are you at? How do you respond to whatever God has put on offer? I got six things I'm going to cruise really fast. Ready? One, God often meets us in our everyday needs in our ordinary life. I think this, I think this passage reminds us of that. Number two, Jesus Christ has the power to transform, reverse, and alter things in the natural world when and as he pleases. Okay, so what this means is you don't have to be stuck. If you have a horrific past, you don't have to be stuck there. Why? Because he can turn water into wine. And some of you have some pretty tough stuff in your history. But you don't have to be a victim to your past. Why? Because he can turn water into wine. Also, on on another, looking at that from another angle. Some of you keep trying to live in your glory days past, or you're you're, you're continuing to prop up something, and it's exhausting. You don't have to do that either. Why? Because he can turn water into wine. And no matter where you're at, no matter what age you're at, no matter what season of life you're at, he can continue to recreate and do things like this. This is so beautiful and amazing about Jesus and about the God of the Bible. Three, through a right relationship with God by faith in Christ, we find inexhaustible joy and ceaseless cause for celebration. I think the wine is kind of symbolic of that. There was a party going on. There was a festival of feast. We, we ran out of wine, you know? And he goes, okay, let's bring some more. Let's keep the dancing and singing going. It's just like Ecclesiastes. When we studied it before, remember, we, we, we highlighted the fact that Koheleth keeps saying, you know, you, you have these things that God has made that are good. As long as you fear God, keep his commandments, you're always looking to him knowing that God has the final word, then eat, drink, enjoy life, enjoy your work. Because God is the one who's given you these things as gifts, not as gain, where you obsess on it, but they're gifts and they're good gifts from God, okay? And I love it, again, and I know some of you were probably raised in the we don't ever drink kind of church like I was. I was raised in the don't drink, smoke or chew or go with girls that do kind of a church like that. (laughs) So the idea of drinking wine, I thought, well, that means you're going to burn in hell, you know, if you drank took a sip of wine or whatever. But here we are at, 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 you know, in our day and time, and I want you to know the Bible does speak very boldly and clearly, unambiguously, about drunkenness. Do not get drunk with wine, okay? Very clear, drunkenness is an abomination to the Lord. It's very clear, drunkenness is an abomination to the Lord, okay? I don't know about you, I don't even want to get close to drunkenness because it's, I don't want to get close to being abomination to the Lord. Does that mean I can't have a glass of wine with there? It doesn't mean that at all. It means I can't get drunk. And I don't want to flirt with the temptation of bumping up against it. But I have a glass of I, I can have a glass of wine. I can, I'm free to do that. I'm free to have a glass of wine. I'm free to have whatever. But when I'm free to do something, I'm also free to not do it. Did you ever notice that about freedom? Christian liberty, that's what that means. None of this owns you. So when we have our church events, we don't have alcoholic beverages. When we have communion, we don't use real wine. We use cranberry juice. You know know why we do it in part? Because there's some people among us that struggle with recovery, and they struggle with alcoholism. And so we're free to not have alcohol. And we exercise that freedom. Are you free to not have alcohol? Are you free to have it and to not have it as well? There should be that freedom that goes both ways uh, if we're really free. The biblical miracles, verse 5, we recognize how they always bring glory to Christ and give rise to increasing faith in believers. Okay, verse 11, right? They manifested His glory, and then the disciples believed. And we're going to see they keep believing more. Just like you and just like I, we're built up in the faith. We grow from grace to grace. Five, transformation often accompanies faithful obedience to Christ. That's true. What if they hadn't gone and gotten the water? I don't know what would have happened. I don't know how that story would have ended. Can Jesus just create instantly six uh, large jars of wine? Yes, he can. But he decided to work through human agents. And I love it that he did that because that means you and I can join him as well in the work that he wants to do in this world. Elizabeth Elliot talked about that in this quote. Here lies the tremendous mystery that God should be all-powerful yet refuse to coerce. He summons us to cooperation. We are honored in being given the opportunity to participate in his good deeds. Remember how he asked for help in performing his miracles? Fill the water pots. Yeah. Stretch out your hand. Distribute the loaves. And here Jesus involves his... Um, these servants at this wedding and this this uh, thing. He's going to do this first of his signs number six Jesus changes the water of religion and rule following into the wine Of the gospel of grace and true freedom so This is me taking a little bit of poetic liberty with the interpretation and application of what's going on here because this is a real event That really happened, but I know that while I'm wired sort of propositionally. I'm the guy that likes, you know, black and white propositions and philosophical arguments and all that stuff. It doesn't mean everybody is. Some people learn differently, more poetically. And I think it's legitimate as long as whatever, however far we go with that, we maintain a biblical balance. We're tethered to the scriptures. We don't make some claim that scriptures never make. I think we're okay to say, you know what? This is exactly right. Jesus just he didn't just alter the water a little bit. He recreated it And this is a foreshadowing of the kind of thing he wants to do in John 10 10 when he says I've come that they might have life and life Abundantly and it's a foreshadowing of what Paul talks about when he says if we're in Christ we're a new creation We're completely new completely different. this isn't just a tune-up. He didn't just make you a better southerner When you came to faith in Christ, He actually redeemed, rescued you, transformed you, turned you into a completely ontological different reality. Your affections redirected, you know, the ones that have been disordered in me and in you, the ones that have been misdirected in me and in you. He's the only one that can do that. I can fill the jar with water. I can read my Bible. I can spend time in prayer. I can go to Second Saturdays of City Service. I can put some money in the box. I can hope and pray. You know, I can do all of that. But without His power, I'm just rearranging stuff on the altar, and there's no holy fire in sight. I need His transforming power to turn water into wine. And that's the kind of thing he wants to do in all of our lives is transform and change us. He's in that conversion business. So, in what areas of your life are you like the wedding and you've simply run out of wine? Maybe that's you. In what areas of your life are you in need of a supernatural transformation, the kind of thing that really only God can do and you know it? You've hit the end of your resources. You've hit all, you you've sort of run up against a wall and the ideas on how you. Can change things between you and another person or between you and your own habits or between you and the temptations that have such a grip on you you know you're out of gas you're at the end of your rope and when you're at the end of your rope this is perfect when you're at the end of your rope that makes you just his glass of wine he's ready to transform now because you've given up you're his cup of tea you're his glass of wine it's exactly what happens, right? So, because it's about His glory. Are you ready to turn from your sin to trust His grace and His mercy to walk in His ways? We need to repent not only from our sinfulness, our moral failures, our lack of love for the poor, our lack of concern for others, our prejudice, our bigotry. We need to turn from all of that. Yes, amen. Let us repent. We also need to turn towards some things, though. And we need to turn toward Him first and foremost. And with Mary, we need to be listening for what is it He wants me to do and be willing, eagerly willing and ready to do it. And I don't know what that looks like in your life, but I hope that you will seek Him in all of that. Here's a couple quotes. One from Spurgeon, there's no physician like the Lord, no tonic like His promise, no wine like His love. So um, this is about finding ourselves collapsing before God and asking Him to transform and change us. He's the only one that really can do that. There's no wine like His love. Some of you have gone to the cross to get saved, but you need to go to the cross and get loved to receive God's love. See, at the cross, we see the intersection of justice, mercy, you know, God's righteousness. We see it all there and His love. There, it's all there. But some of us just go there and, and, and sort of believe in the, the, the historic event, and, and it's only about our justification. But do you know, what, you know what motivated Jesus to go to the cross? Was His love for sinners like me and like you. You need to see His love at the cross, some, some of you. Now, Maybe some of you need to be reminded of the fact that your sins have been paid for too. We're all in different places. We need to see the beauty of the cross in all of its aspects, and one of them is the great love of God that drove him to the cross, and we're reminded of that kind of thing. Um, Gary Inrig in uh, Hearts of Iron, Feet of Clay says, one of the great truths of Scripture is that when God looks at us, he does not see us for what we are but for what we can become as he works in our lives. He's in the business of taking weak and significant people, transforming them by his presence in their lives. See, we're the water in some ways, like with this story here. We're the water, and Jesus is, is the vintner. He's the wine maker. He's the one that can transform and change us. There was a guy, uh, uh, guy named J- another guy named John, actually. Here we are studying the gospel. There's another guy named John, who was born in 1725 in London, England. His mother died when he was seven, at age 11. Uh, his dad dragged him on board ship because his dad was a captain. He went on six journeys uh, with his dad. His teenage years were filled with horror. Uh, they were terrible, uh, in part because of his, his own arrogance and insubordination as a teenager and as a, as just as a, a, a young kid who was just lost. Um, he eventually became involved in the, the shipping industry himself, became captain of a ship. And somewhere along the way read Thomas Akempis' The Imitation of Christ, and during a horrific storm, um, began to turn toward faith in Christ. Um, He eventually became an Anglican pastor, and even after that, a hymn writer. He wrote a hymn that you have all sung. It's called Amazing Grace. His name was John Newton. Um, He had a co-writer, and they wrote, uh, I think it was like 340 hymns, called The Only Hymns. Uh, A guy's name was William Cowper. And so from slave ship captain to a pastor and a hymn writer, John Newton knew what it was like to be completely turned from water to wine. Maybe you're here today and you don't think there's any way you can change. Maybe here today you know you're powerless. I agree with you, you're powerless, so am I. (laughs) But there is one who can change us. There's one who's in the business of conversion, of transformation. Question is, will we trust him? John Newton trusted him, uh, wrote that song that you know, Amazing Grace. Also wrote this one. I want you to read aloud with me, if you will. It'll be very obvious and clear where you ought to read. Let's all read together. Glorious things of you are spoken. Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed you for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake your sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, you may smile at all your foes. Women, see the streams of living waters. Men, round each habitation hovering, see the cloud and fire appear for a glory and a covering, showing that the Lord is near. Thus deriving from their banner, light by night and shade by day, safe they feed upon the manna which God gives them on their way. All, Savior since of Zion City, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride our pity. I will glory in your name. Fading are the world's best pleasures, all their boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures. None but Zion's children know. Zion's children, you, me. Do we know this? Do we go to him for the transformation that we need? Do we surrender to him? Do we listen to Mary and do what He said? Do we do our part to fill the jar with water, but completely dependent on Him to turn it into wine? Do you understand that concurrence, that that intentional surrender to Him and trust in His power to change you and lean on Him and on His grace, uh, His mercy? He has in store much greater things than just turning some simple wine to water to wine. He's, as we go through this, there'll be seven of these miracles, and they're amazing. And that all through this story, here's what we're gonna learn. Jesus Christ really is the one we need, and we need look no further than him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Christ our Savior, our King. Um, Here we are today, some of us indeed struggling, wrestling, broken, even exhausted some of us by trying to make our own wine, trying trying to make our week of celebration last longer on our own. We need you, Lord, how we need you. Help us know the inexhaustible joy and the ceaseless cause of celebration that we can find in you, in your presence, in right relationship with you. Give us the faith that leads to repentance. Um, Give us a desire for you, a faith and a confidence in you that responds in loving obedience to you as Mary recommended to all of us. Help us, Jesus, to see your manifested glory all around us and to believe and to believe and to believe again and to believe deeper, broader, wider, trusting you, hoping in you, having our confidence in you, unshaken because you are the sovereign God, creator of everything that exists. We can trust you because of your great love for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen. Thanks for joining us today. Check back each week as we continue our study of the amazing truths found in God's Word. If you'd like more information about The Village Chapel or our library of audio podcasts, visit us online at thevillagechapel.com.